Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from IPR News. All this week, we're listening back to our 2023 Talk of Iowa Book Club episodes. I'm Charity Nebbe, and we have been reading How High We Go in the Dark by Sequoia Nagamatsu, which is also the all-Iowa Reads selection for 2023. The novel begins in the year 2030, when thawing permafrost, the result of global warming, allows the release of a long, dormant, ancient virus. The resulting pandemic spreads first among children and then mutates to affect adults as well. The book takes place over thousands of years as we see into the past and the future and even travel to deep space. How High We Go in the Dark was published in January of 2022 and became a national bestseller. Sakoya Nagamatsu is an award-winning novelist and short story writer. He teaches creative writing at St. Olaf College and the Rainier Writing Workshop, and he is here with me now. Hello, Sequoia. Hello. So glad to be uh, talking about How High again with you. It is wonderful to have you here. And uh, before we introduce our expert readers this hour, we're going to talk a little bit, but I would love for you to start us off with an excerpt from the book. What would you like to read? I'll be reading uh, the first few pages from a chapter called Pig Sun, which is about um, a little under halfway through uh, the novel. And I guess what you need to know at this point, um, there is a a kind of Arctic plague that sort of sets the scene of the book. And um, at this point, the plague has not been cured. And we're following a scientist who is grieving the loss of his son. um, And his job is to create um, genetically engineered organs inside of pigs. After my ex-wife mailed half of my son's ashes to me in an urn, I committed myself to growing the hearts and other organs that might have saved him inside of pigs. It's Fitch's birthday today, which means Dory texts me more than usual, which is pretty much never. Do you remember how I told you that he'd like to fall asleep hugging his new collection of comic books? I've forgotten what he smelled like. I never respond to these messages. Dory doesn't really want a conversation. She still blames me for not being there in the end. Never understood how hard I fought trying to save him. A real conversation would be too painful. It's the same reason I've never addressed Fitch's failed transplant in my peer-reviewed articles. His file sits inside my desk, rather than among the lab's program records, like a lost statistic. My graduate assistant, Patrice, is shouting through the intercom, telling me to come to the lab quickly. I hear another voice I don't recognize, muffled and nasal and a little bit frantic, repeating the word doctor as if it's trying to convey an entire thought with a single word. I pull on my face mask and lab coat, open the outer door of my office. My staff is gathered around one of the glass holding pens, where we keep our organ donor pigs. The pigs are all destined to help infected people like my son, whose organs have given way to the plague. The timing is crucial, though. We need to reach the infected before they slip into the comas that mark the advanced stages of the illness. This one, Donor 28, was nicknamed Notorious P.I.G., after an intern put a gold chain and shades on him during a Halloween party. The pig studies as I approach, wiggling its behind, and barely opens its mouth. Doctor. The sound seems disembodied, like a ventriloquist is throwing their voice. Okay, very funny, I say, turning to my staff. Who said that? They look at each other, and Patrice points back to the pen. We think it's notorious, she says. 
Okay, sure, forget that these piglets lack the necessary vocal cords for human speech. Even if we have genetically modified them for accelerated growth and organ donor optimization. Doctor. This time the pig's mouth doesn't move at all. I'm starting to get annoyed, but there's something about the voice. Again, I say. I hop into the pen, nearly sliding on a piece of sh and kneel, looking to the animal's blue eyes. Say it. Doctor, he says. Jesus. The pig's strange voice, like a mouth filled with cotton balls, reverberates in my mind. After several more tests, there is no mistaking it. The pig's brain, not quite human and not quite swine, lights up like a firecracker on the MRI whenever he speaks. This does not leave the building. Not yet, I say. We need to know what we have here, and we don't want someone else taking him away. The staff simply nods, but that isn't good enough for me. I need to hear you say it. Yes, I won't say a word. Yes, I won't say a word they repeat in unison like we're in grade school. Good. But this isn't some top-secret facility. There are no security clearances or repercussions here. The grad students were suspect even before the outbreak, swiping medical supplies for God knows what. I worry it's only a matter of time. I'll stop there. I that that chapter is so gut wrenching and heartbreaking and sweet and a little bit funny at times. Uh, is that the chapter that you hear the most about from people? Yeah, yeah, I think definitely Pig Son um, and and I think the City of Laughter are the two that probably destroy the people the most. Sure. Um, in, in slightly different ways. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we will talk about both of those chapters with our expert readers in, in just a little while. But, you know, this book starts with the Arctic Plague and the book was published in 2022. So you wrote this before COVID-19, but it will be forever linked to the pandemic. What were your feelings when it was time to shop this book around and all of a sudden we were living in a pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I, I was deeply anxious and uncertain. I, I thought that there was a possibility that this book that I had been working on for years just would, would never see the light of day because of terrible timing. And I remember my agent um, you know, calling me and we had this conversation of, well, we can go out with the book. I think it's ready, um, but we can wait and see how long this pandemic is going to last. Um, of course, we didn't know how long COVID would last. And we were also, I think, a little worried that if we did wait, there was a possibility that another speculative book with similar themes might sort of fill fill that niche or fill that space. Um, and, and so we decided to ultimately go out while being very careful with our talking points and I think doing the kind of preparation uh, when we started approaching editors that we probably wouldn't have done otherwise. I was... I wrote a personal letter to the editors describing my journey, describing what this book meant to me. And, um, you know, some of the early comps, uh, Station Eleven and Cloud Alice, um, Severance, I think we're really trying to highlight the fact that this was not a pandemic novel with a capital P, but it was largely more about small human moments. Um, you know, at this stage, you know, um, you know, since publication, I, I'm more than happy to call this novel a pandemic novel, and and I'm and I'm very happy with how it's in conversation with our moment. But I think even in the early days, uh, post publication, I was very worried that people would just assume that this was a COVID novel when when it was something yeah. else. Well, and 
we have spoken in the past and and as nervous as you were, you started hearing from people who said this is this felt like exactly what I needed to read in this moment. And this this book is an emotional roller coaster ride. There are a lot of dark moments. There are a lot of really difficult things that you explore in this book. But there's also a lot of warmth and a lot of love. So were you somewhat surprised when people were like, no, this felt like exactly what I needed? I think I was, I guess, yes and no. I think, you know, had it not been for COVID, like my, my, I guess, vision for the kind of writing that I typically do is to, I guess, focus more on kind of that human response. Um, My stories are almost chiefly even you know outside of this book about grief and disconnection and my my hope is that readers are able to to see themselves in that or at least to have an appreciation for a different way of coping through a tragedy or or a different difficult moment in life um I, I was just worried that because of 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 our own pandemic people would kind of cloud what the stories actually were. So I was very heartened when I started getting emails and, you know, uh, people showing, you know, walking up to me at festivals and saying that it actually was a very cathartic thing for them and it helped them articulate their own grief and their own losses. It is uh, an unusual construction for a novel. You published a collection of short stories before this. Did this start as a collection of short stories? Um, yes and no. I think the very, very early pieces, I had like a, maybe a few pieces written were, were standalone stories in their very, very early forms. And, you know, that started as an exploration of, of just grief and alternative funerary rituals. And, um, you know, some of those early pieces I wrote in Japan when I was living there, you know, many years ago. Um, but once I started, I think, um, you know, enough of these stories where characters started to reappear um, I realized that I think in talking to my agent as well, that I had something else on my hand, whether that is a novel and stories or a story cycle or whatever you want to call it. I knew that the world that I was creating was much more expansive than a traditional short story collection. And I think that's where in the last few years for me in the, in the final edits, um, I had a lot of work to do just in order to kind of make sure that those disparate pieces spoke to one another and that there was an evolution of world throughout. As every chapter is, it takes us to a different place, it introduces new characters, but they are all tied together by these various threads. And do you remember when you, when you thought, wait, this is a novel? What made you think that? Um, I think there, there are a couple things. Um, I think the, 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 the desire to revisit certain characters, but I think also when I was thinking about framing all of these stories, um, would it just have, you know, a frame at the beginning of, of the book and a frame at the end, and, and would that just be the end of it? Or would I be thinking about friends or minor characters or family members that would have you know that would take center stage in in another chapter um but i think what finally clinched the the novel sort of category for me was when i ultimately decided to use um aspects of a of a abandoned novel another book that i had been working on in grad school um to be the last chapter 
and that last chapter is kind of hard to talk about it without spoiling anything. I'll just say that it's cosmic in, in many ways. It deals with all of Earth, Earth history, and I wanted to pepper elements and hints towards that last chapter、uh, throughout the book, and that's what really kind of like pushed it over the edge for me. Well, we are going to take a short break.、Uh, we will introduce our expert readers in just a moment. With me right now is Sequoia Nagamatsu. He is the author of How High We Go in the Dark, which is the book we've been reading, but it's also the All Iowa Read selection for 2023. And we will continue our conversation about the book in just a moment. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room. At upstreamfm.com. This is an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This week, we're listening back to our 2023 Talk of Iowa book club episodes. I'm Charity Nebbe. We've been reading "How High We Go in the Dark" by Sequoia Nagamatsu, which is also the All Iowa Read selection for 2023. The novel begins in the year 2030 when thawing permafrost. The result of global warming allows the release of a long dormant ancient virus. The resulting pandemic spreads first among children and then mutates to affect adults as well. And the book takes place really over thousands of years. Sequoia Nagamatsu is here with us today, and it is time to introduce our expert readers. Lynn Nugent is here, editor of the Iowa Review, the flagship literary magazine of the University of Iowa. Lynn, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, and also with us, Dean Bacopoulos, author, screenwriter, and writer in residence, and associate professor of English at Grinnell College, which also happens to be Sequoia's alma mater. Hello, Dean. Hey, good to be here, and good to see an alum making it big. Nice. <laughs> All right, Lynn. I would love for you to go first. Just give me your impressions of the novel. Yeah.、Uh, so. I was pulled in right away on page one with the beautiful description of Siberia melting, and then the mention of a quarantine got my attention. And by chapter two, I was fully crying my eyes out. And I know I'm not alone in that. Looking at the Talk of Iowa Book Club's Facebook right, page, that's true. That's true. A lot of people have said that. Yes. <laughs> yes. I really appreciate when writers can confront our worst fears for us. And so for me, that would be. Pretty much chapter two, a deadly virus that targets children. Yeah. So I knew it would go deep. I knew I was hooked and wanted to know where do you where do you go from there? And after you emotionally destroy us, how do you build us up again? And I feel it really succeeds in that. Nice, Dean. What's what's your first impression of the novel? I mean, one of the things I loved about the novel was how. It recognizes how the small moments keep happening, even when it feels like the world is falling apart. And I think that's something that is really tough to capture: that your heart is still going to break, even when you know there's a pandemic, or you're still going to fall in love in the middle of、uh, war. And this is a thing that I think novelists, the news novelists, bring in a way that the actual news can't quite capture.、Um, it's the it's the little challenges of surviving. 
the day-to-day amid a, a global crisis, which is really where the story happens. And I don't think we've told that story about our actual pandemic. And I think in this novel, uh, Sequoia does such an amazing job of telling that story of how we, we still have to kind of go about our lives, even when the world is, is feeling more and more precarious and dangerous. Right, which, of course, was not your intention uh, <laughs> when, you, when you started, Sequoia, at least not your intention yeah, yeah. Uh, to deal with the pandemic. I am curious, has has response to the novel, have all of the people saying that, you know, this is the right book at the right time for me, has that changed how you think about the novel yourself? Yeah, and I think I, I think I touched on this a little earlier. I think, you know, early on, um, pre-publication and early publication, um, I, I was still very hesitant to call it a pandemic novel or or you know, even using the C word COVID, um, just out of fear that people would kind of just get the wrong idea before even giving it a chance. But I think at this stage, and I think I I really have to thank social media, I think especially Instagram and TikTok, um, a lot of those influencers and reviewers have been doing such a wonderful job at explaining that this book is much more than a virus. It really is about the small moments and actually having, um, you know, people from very, very different walks of life emotionally reacting to it on camera and detailing how it helped them, I think has made me a much more comfortable, um, you know, seeing this uh, narrative as, as being, you know, as, as Dean said, a pandemic story about humanity. It's a pandemic story about those small moments. And I didn't expect to be revising my big debut novel during lockdown. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, that we have to kind of, you know, despite tragedy, live our life. This novel saved me in a lot of ways. Um, It gave me structure. It gave me something to do. I I probably honestly had COVID. I didn't had no way of testing for it, but my lungs were hurting. I was constantly sleeping, but I needed to wake up at some point in the day. And I was working on this book it was the one thing I had to look forward to, even though certain scenes were emotionally draining. It was yeah. it was something that really, you know, I think kept me going in, in summer of 2020. Wow. <laughs> that sounds pretty surreal, as does having like teenagers cry about your book on TikTok. That sounds like a pretty mm-hmm. surreal experience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <as well. laughs> the, uh, I, I want to talk about some of these chapters, because as I've mentioned, this is this is a braided novel. Every chapter takes us somewhere completely different, introduces different people, but there are these threads that tie them all together. And I, I want to talk, you already mentioned it, Lynn, the, the chapter City of Laughter. And this takes place at an amusement park that has been designed for parents of very sick children to bring their kids there to have one more great last day. And there is a roller coaster that has been designed to euthanize these sick children. So they go on their last ride and then their parents collect their ashes at the end of that. And it's a it is a gut wrenching read. Um, Lynn, I mean, you you were bawling your eyes out, but <laughs> what? It, it also, it, it just was so inventive. What was your, what are your thoughts about it? Yeah, well, like I said, I was destroyed by the end of that chapter and was in sort of like at a point of, I can't believe what I just read, what could possibly come next. Yeah. And then, you know, it, what was amazing was that the subsequent chapters were 
so incredibly inventive that they, you know, made me feel like I was sort of climbing a ladder, like fittingly with the title of the book, um, out of this despair and entering into different worlds, different time periods, the future, the far future, even different life forms. And so it kind of amasses all these, this whole power of imagination that Sequoia has to confront these very real issues of grief and death and loss and relationships yeah. that are complicated and family. So, yeah, I mean, I was, by the end, I felt restored. <laughs> so, um, and just in awe of where the journey that I had taken through this book. Yeah. Dean, what what was your response to that chapter? I mean, I think as a novelist, what I really admired, which might seem sort of a uh, sort of inside baseball comment, but I'm thinking about just a choice of point of view uh, to have it narrated by a park employee was sort of a masterful turn because there's this whole economy around grief that, that develops. And I just felt like there was something in that voice and somebody whose you know, job it is to kind of witness and facilitate this um, starting to like get drawn into the actual emotion of it, obviously. So just on that choice, I thought was such an interesting way to tell the story rather than from the point of view of a child or one of the parents. But then the shift that happened for me, you know, is just emotionally starting. You start to, as a parent, you can't, you can't stand this, this chapter. Yeah. It starts to, you know, I was trying to admire it as a novelist, but I started to feel it as a parent. And that, that is where the, to me, uh, it was too, almost too much in a, in a good way, in the way we want the best art to be. But it was starting to feel, you cannot, you know, the story's written with such empathy. You can't not imagine being in these parents' situation. And then the surrealness of grief is something that's really hard to capture on the page. Um, and it does feel often like a spectacle and that you, you're forced to participate in it. You don't have a choice. So all of that, I thought, was just masterful about that chapter. Well, Sequoia, when I picked up this book, I actually expected it to be a lot more about climate change. <laughs> than, than, mm-hmm. I mean, the climate change plays a really important role in it. Um, but this really is a book about grief. And, and that's that was your intention all along? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the earliest seeds were really kind of centering around grief and alternative funerary rituals and just different ways that we say goodbye. And I think especially non-Western ways, um, non-capitalistic ways, or ways in which we can reshape capitalism <laughs> to, to um, grieve more empathetically. And I think I've said this a lot at events where, you know, we, we just don't live in a society, I think especially in America, where we're able to grieve in a way that's, in, in the way that the dead deserve and in, in the way that we deserve um, because we're worried about money, um, because we're worried about our jobs. Um, there's just very little space for us to remember and to dwell in memories. Um, and so I wanted some of these chapters to entertain that to some degree. Well, and you you mentioned uh, our funerary rituals several times, and that's something that comes up so often in the novel. And, you know, obviously, we, we've all been through that in real life, where we've at least attended a funeral, if not planned a funeral, and, and dealt with the way that we deal with death in our culture. But a, a lot of this was inspired by your time in Japan. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so I, I was, um, my grandfather had died not 
long before I had moved to Japan, and, and he, he raised me. Um, and I just never really got a chance for, for various familiar reasons uh, to, to say goodbye in the way that I would have wanted. And living in Japan, um, I was kind of confronted with this culture, especially in the, in the larger cities, where you have a country dealing with a very large elderly population. And with that comes logistical issues of how to honor the dead um, and kind of nod at tradition and spirituality. But also you have this culture that is, you know, really intertwined with our ideas of technology and innovation. So in Tokyo, there are funeral, funeral mortuary skyscrapers because there's no place else to build cemeteries. And because these skyscrapers happen to be in Tokyo, as you might imagine, um, there is some futuristic things going on there. there. There is a holographic wall of Buddhas. There are suites where a pneumatic tube will send an urn up to whatever room that you, you occupy so you can... Uh, grieve, um, you know, your your loved ones um, at the push of a button, and and I did a lot of research while I was in Japan, um, you know, to entertain and think about, you know, what are other ways that the Japanese culture is is exploring, you know, how to honor their dead. But I was also looking, you know, further afield at nonprofit organizations that were doing, you know, pretty far out things in terms of disposing of our bodies in environmentally friendly ways, whether that be putting the body in a tree seed pod or a mushroom suit, or even turning your ashes into a box of pencils, whereby the pencil sharpener box will actually return your ashes into this container as you as you use the pencils. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's not funny. <laughs> but somehow, <laughs> the uh, it's you know, it, it, I think that um, this world that you've created, though it sounds like much of it was inspired by reality, which of course I guess so many creations, if they're close to reality, that makes mm -hmm. them even more um, inspiring in some ways. Mm -hmm, right. uh, let's talk about family relationships because, of course, losing someone is is all about you know, uh, love and, and grief and loss. And also, often there's a lot of regret. And Dean, I would love for you to start us off here, because so many of the moments that characters in this novel have or don't have with their loved ones, they actually reminded me quite a bit of, of some of the non-exchanges in your first novel, Please Don't Come Back from the Moon. And I thought, Dean Bacopoulos is the perfect person <laughs> to, to talk about this. But tell me, tell me about your response to, uh, I mean, there are so many parent-child relationships that were so strained and difficult. I mean, yeah, I think that um, the thing that jumps out when you ask that question to me is from the story Pig Son. Um, the chapter Pigson. Um, it's not necessarily a parent-child in that moment, but it's a moment where the narrator, who has just made this discovery, which I think we'll talk about in a minute, but um, when he's, he makes this discovery um, that's causing all kinds of complications, but what he does is he ends up calling his ex-wife for the first time in years. They, they had lost a son named Fitch, and he calls his ex-wife out of the blue, and the first thing he says is, do you regret not telling Fitch about how bad his condition was, I ask, as soon as she answers. And the wife says, he knew, but I think he appreciated not really knowing. We let him be a kid. And then it gets too excruciating for me to keep reading. But the, the moment of grief 
the hard part about grief is not that you didn't love the person, is that you regret not maybe loving them perfectly, which nobody can do. But I think there's some, you know, deep subtext in this novel in almost all of the grief relationships, including, you know, parent-child ones, um, failed marriages, all of this, that we don't love each other perfectly. And I think no matter what, you know, you feel when you read this book, you can't help but have that resonate with the relationships in your own life um, and how you fail to love somebody perfectly. And then it's it's too late. And I think that that is um, such a testament to the way this, this novel unfolds all of a sudden in the middle of what's kind of feels like a funny futuristic story about a talking pig becomes this moment of huge deep regret and grief it's really beautiful yeah they uh, we we don't we don't for people who haven't read it we don't need to tell them everything about that but that was a father who found you know a a connection that he couldn't have with his son with this talking pig and it's completely gut-wrenching. And Sequoia, you do that to us again and again and again in this, in this novel. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think about Dennis, who is working in one of these uh, funerary high-rises, and um. he has a, a strained relationship with his mother and with his brother, and he had a strained relationship with his father, and the last time he interacted with his father was horrible. And and we just, um, there's just so much grief, so much heartbreak, and so much regret there. And Dennis tries to make it up after he loses his mother and, and tries to make it up after the fact. And that that's also a recurrent theme, Sequoia, about trying to, to right these wrongs when a person is gone. Is that something that, that really resonated with you? Yeah, I think, and I think that really kind of ties to some, I think to a lot of my own experiences, but I think, I think a lot of writers are natural anthropologists or sociologists. We just like to observe people. We, we tend to be the wallflowers at a party. Um, like I'm definitely the kind of person um, that, you know, likes to kind of just, you know, I'll throw the party, but I won't talk to people because I want to kind of just enjoy the enjoy the scene. And, you know, in, in my observations of people and also just reflecting on my own experiences, I've, I've just realized that, you know, as Dean says, we, we don't love perfectly. And even if you know, we thought we did, I think when you lose somebody, there's all of the things kind of come rushing into you where you you have all of these what if moments. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you're grieving some somebody, you're, you're, you you tend to be very hard on yourself um, in, in ways that I think are sometimes very unfair. And sometimes you're hard on yourself because you know um, that you didn't do the right thing um, when you still had time. We have to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club, and we're talking about how high we go in the dark with author Sequoia Nagamatsu, expert readers Lynn Nugent, editor of the Iowa Review, and Dean Bacopoulos, who is writer-in-residence and associate professor of English at Grinnell College. We'll continue in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at UpstreamFM.com. 
This is an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from IPR News. As the year comes to a close, we're listening back to our 2023 Talk of Iowa Book Club episodes. I'm Charity Nebbe. We've been reading How High We Go in the Dark by Sequoia Nagamatsu. It's also the All Iowa Reads selection for 2023. The novel begins in the year 2030. Thawing permafrost releases an Arctic virus that causes a pandemic. It spreads first among children, then it mutates to affect adults as well. The book is not just about this virus. It actually takes place over thousands of years. We see into the past and in the future. We even travel into deep space. With me today, author Sequoia Nagamatsu and our expert readers, Lynn Nugent, editor of the Iowa Review, and Dean Bacopoulos, author, screenwriter, and writer-in-residence and associate professor of English at Grinnell College. And so just before the break, we were talking about these these fractured relationships, these parent-child relationships, our regrets when someone dies, when we haven't loved them as well as we wish we had, or they haven't loved us as well as uh, we wish they had. And Lynn, did you have anything you wanted to add on that topic? Oh, wow. I mean, I just think that, you know, I first became acquainted with this book back in, or a part of this book back in 2019, um, when Sequoia submitted a piece to the Iowa Review, which turned into a chapter from this book, Grey Friends. And what we, I mean, we didn't know the larger context of the book. We didn't know about, I mean, the pandemic in the book was mentioned briefly, and it was it was mentioned um, that it was the future, sometime in the future. But what really pulled us in was the family relationships and, um, you know, issues of immigration, um, whether you should stay in the community where you were born for your entire life and what sorts of betrayals are involved when you decide to have your own life. And, you know, and it was set in Japan, but it just felt incredibly universal to all of our experience. So those complicated family relationships, I mean, I see that throughout the entire book now. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think um, uh, all of us probably can see ourselves or, or things in our lives that reflect, you know, these these different relationships. There's there were certainly, you know, there are moments where you're like, oh, oh, that's that's too close to home. Um, I, I want to take a little sidestep, though, and talk about the fact that the vast majority of characters in this novel are Asian or Asian-American. And Lynn, I know that's something that that is part of your own identity and something that that resonated with you. But tell me tell me your response to to reading this novel and thinking about that representation. Yeah. Um. So I am second generation Korean a second generation Korean immigrant on one side. And I really appreciated um, in this book how most of Sequoia's characters are Japanese or Japanese American, but they're not necessarily walking around reflecting on their identity or culture at all times, so much as trying to survive a pandemic for one thing and just live their lives and fall in love, et cetera. And so and there's an extremely wide range of representation. There's a scientist, a comedian, people who are heroes, people who are jerks. And so it's refreshing to see 
a book that is not, quote, about Asianness per se, per se still permeated by Asians. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm curious if that's something you were consciously striving towards, Sequoia, or is it just something that organically emerged? I think a little bit of both. I think part of it is that like I grew up reading like the Asian novels and films that I grew up with were very, very aware of Asian identity and um, to the point of, I think, sometimes othering um, throughout their own identities or their own communities and exotifying them for, for you know, white audiences. And, you know, some of that, I think, was maybe... Um, you know, indirect pressure that authors put on themselves. Some of it was, I think, um, you know, a little bit of the publishing industry and, and the film industry. You know, we're, we're just starting to see, I think, more diverse representations of what Asian communities look like in, in Hollywood. And and so I've always wanted to write stories where I can express the what I saw to be the Asian diaspora, the way I grew up. You know, I'm third generation Japanese American, so I don't constantly think about being Japanese American or Japanese. I grew up in Hawaii, so yes, I'm gonna like maybe occasionally make a spam musubi, you know, and, and I probably like certain foods and might use certain words more than other people. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I reconnected with my own heritage very late in life. I think much like a lot of other third or fourth generation you know, Asian Americans. And so I wanted to show that diversity. I think even Dennis in LG Hotel uh, mentions that he's a bad Asian. And and I, I felt like that myself for a long time, that I was a bad Asian, that I wasn't doing the stereotypical things that an Asian American, um, you know, young man should do. I didn't play musical instruments. I was bad at math. All of these things that you see as these exotified othering, othering things of Asian identity, I did not want to portray. We do have some uh, some characters that are very good at math as well in the, in the novel. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, there are a few. That's right. It's even a very significant yes. portion of, of the plot. Um, I, I want to talk about genre a little bit. And Dean, I'll, I'll let you start us off. I think that this is what we're now calling speculative fiction. Um, I think you could call it sci-fi, but um, because... It's so, or it has been so mainstream. We don't call something sci-fi when everybody reads it. What are your thoughts about that, Dean? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, genre is evolving as fast as our world is evolving. And so um, I think if you compare the front page of CNN.com in 23 to one in 2000, we, you would feel like, oh, this is from a sci-fi novel, whatever, <laughs> 2020, but it hasn't been that long. And I think that you know, contemporary literature is just reflecting that, that the, you know, it reflects the anxieties of the time, among many other things, and the anger of the time. And so a lot of our anxieties about what's what's coming, and it's just almost impossible to work on a, a realistic contemporary novel without having some forays into the speculative, just because I think maybe our great anxiety is like, what is going to become of public health or technology or AI? I mean, these are conversations we have daily. Um, and so I think it's it's changing the way writers write. It's easier to sort of bring in these speculative elements, even in a really grounded emotional story. And of course, this novel, you know, pushes that as it progresses even further and further, especially at the end, which I love. But in reading it, I don't think most people are thinking this feels like a sci-fi novel. Um, you know, I think it, some of that 
those barriers between what sci-fi is and what quote-unquote literary fiction is uh, really have broken down. And I think it's really rooted in, in just the anxieties of writers working today. It's well, impossible to stay grounded in one space, really. And I asked you at the at the Des Moines Book Festival, Sequoia, if if because I kind of think speculative fiction is is something that we made up so that we can read sci-fi and feel respectable. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think a lot of these, you know, categories are are kind of ultimately meaningless, and and they're a way for various literary communities to. Um, give themselves the permission <laughs> to write, to, to read and write the other side. Um, you know, I'm kind of just remembering, you know, Battlestar Galactica, the, the reboot, everybody, everybody was watching that and yet it was sci-fi. And, you know, I would hear my friends saying, well, you, you need to watch this Battlestar Galactica. It's good, but it's sci-fi, but it's really good. As <laughs> if the default of sci-fi was bad. And I think, you know, a lot of those preconceptions have been demolished. I think the nerds have won to a large degree because if you look at our pop culture, almost all of it is science fiction and fantasy. And a lot of it is deeply human, whether it, you're, you're in space or whether or not you're, you're dealing with an elf community or, or, or whatever. Um, most of what we sort of see as SF and F is, is about humanity. And, and, you know, when I set out to write a story, I'm not sitting down, I'm going to write a sci-fi story today. You know, I, as a writer, you need to be aware of traditions to some degree and where you fall on that, but I'm just writing a story about a character and, and that character will take me in whatever genre he or she needs to take me. Lynn, of course, you publish people's stories all the time. Uh, so tell me your thoughts about genre and how you think about it when you pick things for the Iowa Review. We really don't break things out into those categories. Yeah. More like, is this fiction or is this a poem um, or is this creative nonfiction? Is this good enough for yeah, us? Yeah, is this right? good? <laughs> so, yeah, we're we're not in the business of making that distinction. And I know parts of the publishing industry definitely are. Um, but yeah, we just have, you know, much more basic questions about whether a piece is compelling to us. I want to spend some time talking about hope, because I, I do find this to be a, a hopeful novel. Um, there are a lot of really hard things in this novel, though. I mean, we do have climate change that is transforming the planet, which, of course, is not a science fiction element. This is a real part of our real lives. And then we have this pandemic that has killed so many people. Again, something that we've just experienced. But there is quite a lot of hope in the novel. Um, Dean, why don't I I'll let you go first to, to reflect on that. Did you feel hopeful? I did feel hopeful. I mean, I, I find hope in a lot of things that might seem bleak in summary. And I, d I did want to mention that to listeners, that there's a lot of moments of humor. There's some very funny details in this. There's some very tender moments. I mean, it's a, it's a very, um, the emotional register of this book is, is deep. Um, it's not just bleak, bleak, bleak yeah. at all. Um, and I think that what's so important, you know, when I teach my students at, at Grinnell or when I taught at, uh, at, the, um, at the University of Iowa, I always teach my students that you're your story, no matter how bleak it is, is going to feel hopeful if you put characters over concept. And I think this is really important for for writers, and I think it's something that uh, Sequoia does so well in this book, that the, the characters really do get the moments, the, the, 
the this kind of show-stopping moments of this. And the concept is there always in the background. Um, and I think if you reverse that, sometimes things feel bleak because the concept itself is bleak. This terrible thing happened. There's been grief everywhere. But the characters give us hope because they are still living. They are still pushing forward. They are still resilient. They are still asking huge philosophical questions and never giving up. And I, I think that this book, you know, it's, it's sort of... Um, so good at that emotional modulation. It's not relentlessly bleak, but I really think that comes because the characters become more more important than any of the concepts in the book. Lynn? Yeah, I mean, just to return to the fact that there's a pig named Snotorious P-I-G <laughs> is, I mean, it just reflects the resilience of, I mean, these characters are scientists in a lab trying to cure a global pandemic, and they're, you know, taking the time to give this pig this lab pig, this name, um, I don't know. Yeah, that's just is sort of uh, a small moment of just people continuing to be themselves and find joy where they can. Uh, Sequoia, I know uh, you, climate change is something that, that is important in your mind and in your life. You have engaged in a lot of environmental activism uh, in your life. you really got involved in that at Grinnell College, which I suspect a lot of students do when they're mm-hmm. at Grinnell College. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, do do you as a, a person, not as a writer, not in this novel context, do you feel hopeful about the future of humanity? I think um, day to day, I think that's a little bit more difficult. But I think, you know, if I'm, I'm looking at the bigger picture, I, I think I am hopeful. Um, I think it, it's very easy for 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 us not to be hopeful when you turn on the news or, you know, heaven forbid you go on social media. Um, but if you're looking at kind of like individual actions and if you're looking at your own relationships, if you're looking at small moments of kindness, which I think, you know, my novel is trying to kind of, you know, demonstrate, I, I, I think there is a lot of room for us to be hopeful about kind people and empathetic actions existing in the world. And ultimately, I think another takeaway I want from this novel, you know, for readers is this idea of community, that we need to come together and we need to look past our differences in order to address climate change, in order to move beyond, you know, something like COVID-19. We have just a a few minutes left. And, you know, this this book was selected as the All Iowa Reads book for 2023 for a lot of different reasons. I'm not on that committee, but I have spoken to people on that committee. It was it was the pandemic. It was climate change. It was community. I mean, these are the the themes that made them want to choose this. But uh, Lynn, why would you tell somebody to read this book? Well, I think that I mean, if you're the kind of person who says, I don't I don't want to read a climate change novel or I I don't want to read a pandemic novel right now. I totally understand that, but I think, you know, all those anxieties we have don't just go away if we ignore them. And, you know, I don't know about other people, but climate change nightmares are part of my life. Um and so for writers to be real with us and confront our fears, I feel that's really a gift because those fears will be there anyway. And I just read an article in Harper's about how the narrative, a lot of media are changing the narrative from pessimism on climate to optimism, not for any real reason or for anything having having happened, but just because people want a different narrative. And so I think it really falls to writers to uh, imaginatively populate the possible future and um, really bring it 
forward in our attention. What about you, Dean? Why would you tell somebody to read this book? You know, I would think that, especially in Iowa right now, there's actually legislation and movements afoot that that are dehumanizing certain groups of people. And I think a, a novel like this reminds us that we have these small connections and that that's all we have. We have so little control over so much else. But what we can control is treating other humans with kindness, with dignity and with respect and not demonizing people or othering people in these really insidious ways. And so I think it's a really important book to read in Iowa right now and remind us that, you know, that is what keeps us alive, really, is taking care of each other and protecting each other. We are out of time, but thank you all so much for being part of this conversation today. Dean Bacopoulos, thank you. You're, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Dean Bacopoulos is an author, screenwriter, and writer-in-residence and associate professor of English at Grinnell College. Lynn Nugent, thank you. Thanks for having me, Charity. Lynn Nugent is editor of the Iowa Review. And Sequoia Nagamatsu, thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you so much for having me again. Sequoia Nagamatsu is the author of How High We Go in the Dark. Thank you to Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City for providing books for our readers. You can join us on Facebook. Just search for IPR's Talk of Iowa Book Club. This episode was produced by Caitlin Troutman and Samantha McIntosh. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa.